When you open up your weather app and see a forecast for 85, 90, even 99 degrees, you brace yourself for a hot day outside. But for some in Arizona, living through a record-breaking heat wave without air conditioning, that's the temperature inside their homes. Just after lunchtime and temperatures reaching 85 degrees inside Paulette Hamilton's apartment unit, she says it went out Thursday evening. Five days is a long time to go without no air. When it's over 100 some degrees. We're getting the temperature of the wall. It's around 98 to 99 degrees. This is what Hope McNally has been living in for the past two months. Now she is hoping that she gets some cool air. It's miserable. It is miserable in here. Earlier this week, Phoenix hit 19 straight days of temperatures clocking in at 110 degrees or more. A new record with little relief in sight. And it's not just Phoenix. Austin, Texas had 10 straight days with a high temperature of 105 degrees, also unprecedented. Tens of millions of Americans are living in places with dangerous levels of heat. Places where air conditioning can be the difference between life and death. And that means we're all desperately relying on the electric grid. I didn't worry about it that much until really the past few years. We've seen some really major examples of the grid going down for for multiple reasons. That's Dr. Joshua Rhodes, a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin. He studies energy systems and how they interact with our environment, climate, and lives. Over the past few years, he's seen severe weather cause the grid to fail when people need it the most. You know, I was one of the 12 million Texans who lost power for four days um, because our system basically froze. Folks in California are often having their power shut off for either wildfire issues or the risk of wildfire issues. We've seen issues on the, on the East Coast with massive storms that come through and disrupt you know, the infrastructure. Why the grid goes down, it seems to be a little bit dependent on, on where you are, but the, you know, the impact is the same. You know, the, the energy that we're using to power our modern you know, day life is, is interrupted. So today on the show, climate change is threatening the grid and our ability to survive extreme weather. Can we fix it? I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you're listening to What Next TBD, a show about tech, power, and how the future will be determined. Stick around. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank, USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. America. We are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. 
I want to ask you the most basic of questions, which is when we talk about the electric grid or the electricity grid, what does that even mean? Because I think of it as like, you know, some like orange coil running across the country, like the kind you would see if you look in your toaster, but I know that's completely incorrect. So I need you to just explain it to me like I'm, a, I'm an idiot. Like, what is it? So at a high level, the grid is actually the biggest machine we have ever built. Essentially, the same electricity that's powering people in Florida is the same grid that's giving people power in Maine, and, you know, all the way over to the middle of the country. The grid is basically how electricity gets to you. It's how electricity is made. It's how electricity is moved around. And it's mm-hmm. becoming more and more how that electricity is being um, consumed when we're, you know, not only talking about making more electricity, but also sometimes having people reduce their electricity demand so we can, you know, match that supply and demand balance. The grid really consists of the the big power plants that people might think of that make electricity, the big wires and poles that you might see along an interstate or kind of out in, in more bigger rural areas that are moving large amounts of electricity. And that's um, that's generally what we call the, the transmission grid. And then there's the distribution grid, which are the small wires and poles that might, you know, go down your alley or down your street, the ones that directly connect to your home or business. And those are the ones that you're distributing that uh, that electricity. And then I would argue that the things that we consume electricity with, whether that's electric cars or toasters or computers, are also part of that system because, you know, they're the ones that are that are consuming that electricity and they can do that dumbly or they can do that smartly. While the U.S. grid has so far been somewhat resilient in the face of climate change, it's also designed in a way that limits how we can transfer energy. Rather than one giant national grid sending electricity all over the country, it's split into regions. In North America, we generally have three grids. Um, Basically, if you think about it as the Rocky Mountains East, that's the eastern interconnection. And then the Rocky Mountains West, that's the western interconnection. And then there's Texas. Um, Texas is its own grid uh, for a lot of funky historical reasons, a lot of regulatory reasons. Texas is its, is its own grid. But generally, what I mean by their own grid is those areas are able to share power with each other. You can't really share power from New York to California because they're on different grids. And Texas really can't share power with anyone because we're on our own grid. Why would the grid be set up like that? You, you would think you'd want to be able to share as much power as you can. The grid is the way it is based on the way it evolved and the technology that we've had at different times. When electricity was first becoming, you know, something that people wanted to consume, we really didn't have the technology to move it very far. And so if you go to some of the earliest places where electricity was being consumed in like in New York City, you might have had multiple grids, you know, block to block because we really couldn't move electricity very far. So we'd have a local power plant with local wires giving local electricity, but that power plant couldn't even move electricity three or four mm-hmm. blocks over. So we needed another grid to do that. And as technology advanced, you know, it became valuable to connect these grids for redundancy. So if one power plant went down, maybe you know, another one could provide power to those other consumers. And then they kind of organically grew up that away. And so where you see the edges of the grid now are are places where demand is relatively low. Mm-hmm. And so kind of along, you know, in the middle of the country, 
it's um, not that many folks live there compared to the coast. And so you don't have as strong of connections, you know, going that far. And so they just, it's, it's somewhat of a, you know, historical reasons and also, you know, technological reasons why we aren't all connected together. And having a large grid can be useful in terms of moving electricity around. It can also be a little bit unwieldy if you have a, you know, the larger, the larger the machine gets, sometimes the harder it is to keep everything in balance. And we've actually seen global instances, China actually had a, a really large grid um, in, and they decided to actually cut it in half because it was easier to, to manage. And so they've actually gone the other way sometimes, whereas we're kind of talking about, you know, more connections. In some cases, less connections can actually be a little bit easier, easier to manage. Do catastrophic grid failures, do those happen with any kind of frequency? Like, what does it take to bring that about? Yeah, so the vast majority of times when people lose power, it's because of a local issue. It's that distribution grid issue I was talking about, mm-hmm. say a, a local storm, an ice storm, a squirrel. Yeah, a tree a tree just fell yesterday um, on my block and we were out. We had no power for like two hours on a beautiful day. Nothing else happening, just no power. A, a car hit a pole a, a few blocks away from my house the other day, and we also lost power yeah. for a few minutes. Um, so it, 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 yeah, it happens, and and that you know that's the vast majority of the ways that people experience you know losing electricity is is more of a local issue. Mm-hmm. The big catastrophic ones that happen you know on the transmission network, kind of a, on the on the big one, are are when we lose a big power line. Um, as we've seen in California with some of the public safety power shutoffs and the, the wildfires and you know the older lines or large storms that say take out large transmission lines like we like we saw in um, New Orleans a few years ago or Superstorm Sandy on the East Coast or things froze like they did in in Texas and we just ran out of power plants yeah um, we had we had most of the wires available but we didn't have the power plants to, to make the the electricity. So those big um, events, they they don't happen very often, but when they do, you know, they have a much bigger impact than, say, just a, a local line going down in a neighborhood or two losing electricity because our, our lives run on electricity and they would unravel pretty quickly when we don't get it. Yeah, it really struck me um, in getting ready to talk to you. I mean, we just lived through this catastrophic public health crisis and the pandemic, but losing power, um, even just for a day in a big city, that's a public health crisis too, especially, um, we're thinking about it now in the, the summer in the context of these heat waves. I mean, is that something that, that you think about? Is that something that's more of a possibility now, um, that the temperatures are going higher and higher? Yeah, absolutely. Texas lost power when it got really cold outside because our grid wasn't really made for that. It's doing relatively well now with this this heat wave because it, it was built for that. It's built. We just assume everyone's going to have an air conditioner down here mm-hmm. because everybody has an air conditioner down here. Um, there are other parts of the country that that's you know that hasn't historically been the case. Some of the more northern areas of the country um, they they historically haven't had air conditioners. But you know, as the climate changes, as it gets warmer, as we get these heat domes and these heat waves and you know, more people are going to want to buy air conditioners. And, you know, as someone who owns one, I don't blame them. Historically, what we've seen is that when people buy air conditioners to say, make it through those two weeks that are the hardest, mm-hmm. they generally use them for many, many months because 
they have them and it's, you know, it's, it's, it can take the edge off. It can make things more comfortable longer. And so we don't only see it like a large increase in electricity during heat waves, but we'd see a general increase in electricity use because people are, are using them more often. Now, Northern grids are more built for wintertime, but adding this extra demand during the summer means they're either going to, they're going to be taxed and there, there could be issues associated with their operations or they you know, need to be rebuilt. They need to be rebuilt in a way that um, is, is ready for this, is ready for our new reality. Last month was the hottest June on record and July has been even hotter. This kind of extreme heat is particularly taxing on an electricity grid. The heat has kind of a double or triple whammy when it comes to the, the electricity grid. One, the hotter it is outside, the less efficient power plants are and the less power they're actually able to make. So a power plant might be derated. Um, it might not be able to produce its maximum output if the temperature is, is really high because it's just not built for that. Also, the power lines, the hotter they get, the less electricity we're able to move through them. So we're not only we're able to make less power and we're, able to, you know, we're not able to move it around as freely as we'd, as we'd like, and, you know, the heat is essentially what drives air conditioning use. And so it increases electricity use. So at, this, at the same time that we're not able to produce and move enough power in the extreme heat, we're also wanting more of it to keep ourselves cool, which, you know, can put us in a, a tight spot if, um, if the grid doesn't have enough reserve power plants or enough reserve capacity to move it around. Are there any other ways climate change affects grid, like hydroelectric power, like if, if there are droughts, things like that, um, is that something to be concerned about too? Absolutely. So certain parts of the country that, you know, rely on things like hydropower for, for, for a lot of their electricity, I'm thinking like the Pacific Northwest and, you know, California, um, you know, this year has been a different year. The snowpack has been really, really high. So there's a lot of hydroelectricity available, but that's not always the case. We've seen other years where you know snowpack has been very low and places like you know California have struggled to provide the the power that they need for for their people. And so if climate change changes weather patterns and we get lots of snow or no snow at all, it can really impact our ability to make and move electricity. When we come back, forget quick fixes. The grid needs a makeover. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Much like most infrastructure in the U.S., the grid is in desperate need of modernization. And as we move towards new technologies that suck up even more energy, like electric vehicles, 
we're going to be relying even more on the power from the grid, pushing it to the limit. The problem? Modernizing the grid will not be cheap. You know, a few years ago, I actually put down to pen and paper, like, what would it cost to basically rebuild the entire system if we, if we wanted to? Mm-hmm. We came out, it was about five to five and a half trillion dollars if we wanted to replace all the lines and all the power plants and everything, like for like. And if you look at, you know, the ages of all the infrastructure, um, just to upgrade those that are, that are old, that are about to retire, we need to inject about two and a half to $3 trillion into the system just to bring up everything to kind of a modern, kind of a modern standard. And so it's trillions of dollars to just keep the grid going as it is, mm-hmm. but that didn't include these new uses of electricity and the new reality of, of climate change. So you're probably talking about another couple trillion dollars on top of that to uh, to really get it into a robust grid that can you know withstand a lot of these things that you know are being thrown at it. One of the issues, though, is we generally are only reactive in how we deal with emergencies. So Texas, hopefully, is going to you know winterize its system so that we're able to withstand those cold snaps. But that's going to cost money, money that you know would have been hard to spend before a freeze actually happened. Mm-hmm. In California, they're going to bury a lot of you know transmission lines through wildfire-prone areas, which cost a lot more money than just running overhead lines like we've done in the past. But now that we've seen their ability to basically destroy entire towns if the fire starts in the right place, now we're going to spend that money. And, and similarly, after Superstorm Sandy on the East Coast, burying lines to deal with storm surge and all those other kinds of things. So... We're modernizing the grid, but only really in a reactive when I would argue that we need to be more proactive. One clear way to protect our power supply is by making the switch to renewables like wind and solar. Right now, the electric grid gets the majority of its energy from fossil fuels like oil, gas, and coal. And the emissions from those fossil fuels are making extreme weather more extreme. I'm moving to, to more things like renewables, other sources of energy that don't you know, produce carbon dioxide... That's trying to tackle the underlying part of the problem, right? So that's trying to tackle the the climate change that's really, you know, fueling a lot of these storms and a lot of these things that are that are happening that are throwing extra uh, challenges at the at the grid as it is. Some of the things like burying lines that's more of kind of adapting yeah. to kind of where we are. Things like you know wind and solar, you know, they're not always going to be as vulnerable as supply chain issues when it comes to fuel supply. That's one of the things we've seen is. Sometimes we're not able to get fuel to coal and natural gas power plants because of other weather-related issues going on. And so it kind of takes some of that uncertainty and some of that um, risk out of the, the equation as well. Are there other, other things I'm missing here? What needs to be done to modernize the separate grids? Do they need to be hooked up together? Is that going to help modernize the grid? What, what other stuff needs to happen? Yeah, so there, there have been some studies coming out of the National Renewable Energy Lab showing the resiliency and you know cost-saving benefits of adding connections between these grids, and that doesn't necessarily mean we connect them in in the sense that you can get a little wonky here, but synchronously connect the grids. We can actually do connections between the grids that allow them to still operate as they are, mm-hmm. but are able to share big, uh, large amounts of power through these D- uh, direct current or DC connections. And that's important for t- Texas too, because the, one of the reasons Texas is its own grid is because 
it it means we're not under federal jurisdiction for how we operate down here. And that's one of the big reasons why we're still not connected to to other regions. But having these direct current connections apparently doesn't trigger that for for us. And so I, I, I think in some of the research we're doing at the University of Texas shows that having some bigger connections to the eastern and western grids could be very valuable in terms of resiliency and also cost savings. Wind and solar sounds really great and utopian, but what are the what are the downsides? Yes, I mean, the downsides to wind and solar is the sun's not always shining, the wind's not always blowing. Um, and so during those times, they're not able to, you know, make new electricity. One of the things that we also have, you know, on the system is a, is a large interest in energy storage. So taking that electricity whenever it's being produced, but not needed and storing it for later whenever it's not being produced, but it is needed. Mm-hmm. I took a look at the interconnection queue or the list of power plants trying to connect in Texas. And I was actually blown away by how much energy storage um, is trying to connect to the to the system. Our peak demand is 80,000 megawatts and there's over 100,000 megawatts of energy storage trying to trying to connect to our system. So I, I think, you know, there, while there are downsides, um, you know, to, to wind and solar, I think we have the technologies to, to mitigate them. We can store it in energy storage, better connections, more transmission allows us to move it around because even though it may not be windy somewhere, it might be windy somewhere else um, or sunny somewhere else. Um, and so I, I think, you know, we have the technology to 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 overcome a lot of the you know a lot of the downsides that that those do have but governments aren't just changing the energy supply they're looking at ways to reduce energy demand so-called demand response programs essentially try to entice folks to use less power at peak times through financial incentives like lower energy bills with electricity you have to match supply and demand in real time and historically if demand has gone up, we've just increased supply. But you know, you can use both sides of that equation to to balance. And so, if if we, you know, have programs where we say pay companies or pay people to reduce electricity during certain times, that can go a long way in terms of you know keeping the system stable. Because on the system right now, on the grid right now, we do have certain power plants that only operate a few tens or maybe a couple hundred hours per year. And even though we paid millions or billions of dollars for them, they don't operate very often. But because we have to match that supply and demand in real time, we have to have them if we want to give power to everybody whenever it's the hottest outside and every air conditioner is running and every office and every home and every computer is, is, is you know consuming electricity. We, we have some programs in Texas where we some of our big industrial consumers on the Gulf Coast have agreed to reduce their electricity during critical times, and we pay them to do that. And there are more and more programs where, you know, individual homeowners can sign up to have, you know, an aggregator, you know, change the thermostat settings in their home um, to, you know, reduce electricity consumption during certain critical hours. If you roll that around from home to home every 15 minutes, the homeowner might not even notice, but it might save hundreds of millions of dollars when it comes to, you know, not having to build these extra power plants. It sounds like there's a lot of work to do to modernize the grid and there's all these climate catastrophes coming. And I mean, what hope do we have that any of this actually happens? So I find hope in the fact that if you look at the... the, interconnection queues, or basically the the list of power plants that are trying to get built and get connected to grids all across um, the U.S., they are chock full of wind, solar, and storage projects. 
no one's building an, a coal plant in this country. Um, and there's very little other types of, of power plants being built. So we are, what we're building going forward is, is clean. And I do find some, you know, I do find some hope in that, that our future system is going to be much cleaner than our, than our, than our current system, which, you know, will mean less carbon emissions and helping us fight, you know, climate change. We are more connected as a society. And so, you know, more people are able to, you know, participate in these demand response programs, which can keep the grid stable whenever conditions um, get tight. Um, and we're becoming more efficient overall in terms of, you know, how we use um, electricity. We've got a long way to go in each of those, but I do think we're headed kind of in the in the right direction. And, you know, some of the the tax credits and other things coming out of the Inflation Reduction Act, I think will be helpful in terms of, of moving that forward. But there are going to be challenges. There are going to be other times when the grid goes down and um, because nothing's perfect. But uh, I think we're moving in the right direction. Dr. Rhodes, thank you for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. Dr. Joshua Rhodes is a research scientist at the University of Texas at Austin. He studies energy systems and how they interact with our environment, climate, and life. And that's it for our show today. What Next TBD is produced by Evan Campbell. Our show is edited by Mia Armstrong-Lopez. Alicia Montgomery is vice president of audio for Slate. TBD is part of the larger What Next family. TBD is also part of Future Tense, a partnership of Slate, Arizona State University, and New America. If you're a fan of the show, I have a request for you. Become a Slate Plus member. Get all your lovely Slate podcasts with no ads. Just head on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. We'll be back Sunday with another episode. I'm Emily Peck, filling in for Lizzie O'Leary, and you can catch me over at Slate Money every Saturday. Thanks for listening.